an integral character in the entire story of God from Genesis to Revelation is this man named David, who's a shepherd boy turned giant killer turned incredible king, who had much courage but also a lot of controversy. For every Goliath, we will see a Bathsheba. For every act of compassion, there is a slaughtering. For every moment of prophetic anointing to write the Psalms and poems about the goodness and grace of God, to unravel his heart towards God. For every beautiful poem is a moment he will break the law of God and man, and yet God himself defines him as someone after his heart. What great news for all of us that feel like my failures are identified, I'm identified by my failures. You can still be, despite your past, a man or woman after God's heart. God can see you that way, but you got to lean in to what he wants to do. Now, this is a series that is a biopic. It is going to drill deep, like my college professor said from North Carolina, inch by inch, everything's a cinch. Yard by yard, everything's hard. And inch by inch, we're going to drill deep into the character and conduct and convictions, the good, the bad, and the ugly of King David. And this series is in three pieces, three volumes. It's a trilogy of a series. And this first part is all about origin stories, leading up to where David finally comes on the scene. We haven't even met our key character in this story until today. Week four, today I'm calling this message uh, Disanointing Behavior, and I'll get into that in a moment. We've been in these origin stories leading up to the king, the anointing of King David, and in this time, the nation of Israel is not a nation. It's a group of tribes. It's kind of surrounded in the promised land between Amalekites and Philistines and Edomites and Termites and you name it, and they're just all kind of surrounded, and and they want to be like the rest of all the nations. They want a king. And in those days, in Judges 21, in those days, Israel had no king, and so the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Now, here's a little bit of a side note. The Israelites did have a king. They just didn't recognize the king. They wanted a physical, what you can see with your eyesight kind of king, but they already had what you can hear in your heart and insight kind of king. They had God, the greatest king of all kings, and yet they wanted their own thing. They could feel and listen to, and they would lead them, and they wanted a king that would take them into battle and take care of them and keep them safe. Now, that is not just the story of the book of Judges and the story of this ragamuffin group of tribes that will later become a nation. This is the story of us. Even today, in good old 2021, everyone is searching for a king. And that king in your life and in my life is the the thing or the person that we look to for stability and prosperity and happiness. When that marriage is the only thing that brings stability, prosperity, and happiness, well, that becomes the king. When the paycheck is what brings stability, prosperity, and happiness. When when the words of accolades that you've been so desperately wanting to hear or you didn't hear and you rely on on, on the hurt, the wound that you've experienced because you haven't heard the words you wish you could hear, that experience becomes king. Every one of us have a king on the throne of our heart. The question is, who's that king gonna really be? And the nation of Israel, before they're ever a nation, they say, we want a king that's going to bring us together, going to make us feel good, going to make us like all the other nations. And the prophet Samuel says, 
fine. Why do you really want God doesn't well God wants to be your king. They said, "No, give us our king. Do you see what you're going to you're going to happen? Your boys are going to die in battle. You're going to be taxed like crazy. We don't care. Give us our king." Be careful what you wish for because you just might get it, and that's exactly what happens. In 1 Samuel 9, Samuel goes out and there was a wealthy, influential man named Kish from the tribe of Benjamin, one of the tribes of Israel. And his son Saul was the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. He is the Shaquille O'Neal of the Jews. Everybody's, well, I mean, in the school pictures, you can see Saul's like, just like out there. Rest in his head, rest in his elbows on the rest of everybody's heads. He is head and shoulders above. Now, remember this because this is going to come back in part of our story today. Saul is anointed by Samuel, and Saul begins to do his work as a king, who they really didn't need, but God let them. He answered a prayer for them to learn. It wasn't even the right prayer for them to pray. Sure enough, over the next several years, Saul bands together the tribes of Israel. Instead of just kind of everybody doing their own thing, they form a constitution, a national defense system, an army, a national guard. They they form processes and taxes, and they they build recruiting systems to, to build up their military. He selects a city out of this promised land called Gibeah, his own city, his own hometown, Gibeah becomes the capital city and he develops the the new throne of the king of Israel there in Gibeah. And here he is faithful and loyal and honors God and does his deal and he grows, he's strong, he grows older and 25 years later, we pick up the story. 25 years, he's now been king and we're coming to a turning point, we're coming to an intersection in Saul's life. We pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Here's how the story goes. One day, Samuel the prophet said to Saul, it was the Lord who told me to anoint you as king of his people, Israel. Now, listen to this message from the Lord. Now pause, why is he reminding him of this? Because when you are head and shoulders above everybody else, when you have 25 years of success, just like me and just like you and just like Saul, it can very easily get, uh, get foggy who did the succeeding. It can get a little cloudy who's really in charge. The better I get at my craft, the more I succeed, the more I think I succeeded. The more, the more I do, the more I think I got this. And the less I remember what God's part in the whole process was. And so Samuel starts out. Now remember where you came from, son. And Saul says, I remember. And here's what, here's what God says for Samuel to tell Saul. I've decided that I'm gonna settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Several decades earlier, the Israelites had come out of, they had exodused out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness for 40 years and finally into the promised land. And in that process, they had some battles. One of them was with an enemy called the Amalekites, Amalek and the Amalekites. And Moses, there was a power of God on the Israelites in that time. When Moses would lift his hands in the battle, they would win. 
When Moses' hands would get tired and would get weak and would fall down, they would begin to lose. And the Amalekites would surge forward against the Israelites. And so what happened was two men would come next to Moses and they would hold his hands up. And while his hands were up, they would win the battle. Can I just say something? Side notes, not even in the sermon, but it's a little like a sermonette within a sermonette. That's the way I roll. That's what accountability should look like. Many times accountability, do you know what accountability looks like? Well, don't screw it up. I'll tell you, if you do something wrong, just go do your job, whatnot. And you're waiting in the wings to see what happens wrong. That's a Pharisee kind of thing. That's what the Pharisees were doing with Jesus. They were trying to hold him accountable. Oh, the law of Moses says you're not, so, you know, you're not supposed to do that during, on the Sabbath. They're, they're trying to catch him. That's what accountability can be. You better behave. I'm watching you. And that's sometimes how we can view God. That he's the eye in the sky. He's the big man upstairs. You better not make him mad or he'll slap you across the face with a belt. Tapping his foot, leaning over the wall of heaven, waiting for you to screw up again. That's an inappropriate view of God. See, the story of Moses holding his hands up against the Amalekites and these men coming next to him and holding his arms up when he got tired. That's what accountability is. That I'll get close to you and I'll hold you up when you don't feel strong. Oh, we need men and women in our lives that will hold us accountable. Not hold us accountable to what we did wrong, but get close enough and for you to be real enough and to be honest enough and transparent enough that they can hold your hands up because there are areas where you are weak and there are areas where I am weak and I need someone that will hold my hands up. Do you know that's what God does? Jesus comes to you and you're not strong and he's strong for you. He lifts you up when your strength isn't perfect. That's the kind of Jesus that you and I serve. But Saul, he is now gonna have to deal with something that they didn't deal with. It's a little thing that's becoming a big thing. The Amalekites, when they took the promised land, God said, drive out all the opposing forces of all the Canaanites, including the Amalekites, drive them all out of the land. But they didn't do it. And over the course of a few decades, that little group of Malachites got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And so here we hear a hard word from God. It's hard for us to place 21st century Americanized Christianity on top of a, a God who is God and is going to have his way. He, he brings to life. He can, take, he can bring to death. He can choose to raise up. He can choose to tear down. He's God and we're not. And it doesn't fit within our cultural lens of what a loving father would do. But when God is God, he's going to have his way. And they didn't obey him. And so here's what he said to do to Saul. Saul, here's what I want you to do. You're going to go completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. You should have done it earlier, but you're going to go do it. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, donkeys, everything. Get rid of it. Obliterate it. They're going to be wiped off the face of the earth. Everything. Am I clear? Saul goes, yep. So Saul mobilized his army. And Saul slaughtered the Amalekites, from Havilah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. It's just like a, it, 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 it's just a bloody mess. Now, he captured Agag, the Amalekite king, but completely destroyed everyone else. Now, had we not just spent just a little bit of time clarifying how clear God already was, destroy everything. How, what was he supposed to do? Destroy what? Everything? Everything? Yeah, everything. Do you know in the Hebrew, the word everything means everything. Yeah, that's what it means. 
But he captured Agag. I mean, you know, no, he, 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 he completely destroyed everything else. I mean, he kind of, sort of, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more, say no more. He kind of did everything, sort of, kind of-ish. Saul and his men spared Agag's life. And they kept the best of the sheep and the goats, the cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs. Again, it sounds like, hey, we fought in this battle. We... We risk our own lives. I mean, shouldn't our, shouldn't our wives and our children kind of benefit from us being out on the battlefield? Don't we deserve this? They, they spared all the cattle. Everything, in fact, that, everybody say it out loud, everything that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. Whoa! Uh uh. Back it up, Saul. Should have done it different. But he kept everything that appealed to them. You know, that can happen in our own lives following Jesus. It's easy to say, I'll follow you when you're asking me to, to do this and do this and do this. But when you get into my comfort zone, when then you begin to ask me to sacrifice, when then you ask me to follow you, even when it makes more intuitive sense and common sense to me to do it a different way. God, I know you say do it this way, but I, this is just the way I'm going to do it because it makes more financial sense to me, economic sense to me, relational sense to me, emotional sense to me. It makes more sense. I'm lonely and you told me not to marry this person. I was, you were clear, but God, I don't want to grow up single. And so I'm going to do everything. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to serve on a dream team. But I, got, I, can't, I can't be single here. And so we obey, but we disobey. So there's some life lessons that we're going to uncover from a few characters today. The first are some life lessons from King Saul. Would you write this one down? Life lessons from King Saul number one. Little things are actually big things in disguise. Every little thing that you think is really little now, if left to its own devices, can become a very, very big thing. The tiny little drip during snowpocalypse on that pipe that slightly got a drip over time, that little thing can become a what? <laughs> a big thing. A few extra calories, a little bit at a time, can become a big thing. A little bit of investment at a time can become a big thing in disguise. That latte that you spend money on every single week, me too. Every single day, me too. Like invested, like your lattes are retirement. Little things become big things. Hey, October 2nd, I'm having to make it public because I got to keep working hard. And I'm five months to the day away from participating, participating, not competing, just participating in an Ironman. Now, here's what an Ironman is. An Ironman is a, don't, don't woo with it. No, no, don't, don't. Just pray. <laughs> don't go, woo. Just say, oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Touch our pastor's brain. Okay, that, that's, that's what you need. But here, here, here's what an Ironman is. It's, it's a triathlon. It's a swim and a bike and a run. It's a 2.4-mile swim, a 112-mile bike, and, and then a marathon at the end. If you're not already on drugs by then, you will be by the end of that. Okay, so like, it's a crazy, it's stupid. It's stupid, why am I doing it? I don't know, because I wanna try it, okay? I, I've done some half Ironmans, this is a big thing. 
And can, can I say, little things over time become big things that are in disguise. And so the right time for me to start training for an Ironman, it'll be October 2nd in Muncie, Indiana. Sexiest place on earth, just voted. No, I'm, I don't even, it's not. I don't even know why it's in Muncie. It's just, that's where it is. October 2nd, I'll be running the Ironman. I, would it be wise for me to start September 2nd, a month early? No, no, that would be stupid. So November of last year, I hired an Ironman coach. I pay an Ironman coach monthly to give me training and specifications and to measure things and to push me and to challenge me and to write all of my traits. So I've got this Ironman coach, November of 2020, because 11 months later, because little things over time become big things. So I was swimming and like, I, I had to learn how to swim. Okay, no, I'm kidding, I, I, I knew how to swim. But like over time, eventually, the little things become the bigger things. Good and bad and ugly, little things become big things in disguise. And what we're seeing is there are some elements in Saul's life that are little, that are becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. Because here's what happens. Here's how it unfolds. The Lord said to Samuel, because here's what Saul did. He didn't obey God. I'm sorry I ever made Saul king, for he's not been loyal to me. See, it wasn't about the slaughtering. It wasn't about anything. It was about the loyalty. The loyalty of Saul to the true king. He was being loyal to himself versus loyal to the one true king. He's refused to obey my command. And Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. Why? Because he knows what's about to go down in Hebrew town. Because early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. This is where you go, uh-oh. Thank you. Now, when Samuel finally found him, have you ever, like, you know what's going to happen, but nobody else knows what's going to happen? It's like your kids, you, you found something they did wrong, or they did, or they said, or, or you caught them in a lie, and you come into the room, and they're all like, hey, how you do it? But you're about ready to drop a bomb on them. That's what's happening right here. Because Samuel went to find Saul, and when Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. He don't know what's about to happen. Saul's like, Sammy, Sam, 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 I am, what's up? He said, bro, Seth, I carried out the Lord's command. I did it, high five. And Samuel ain't having it. He's about to go spiritual Chuck Norris on Saul. Because the moment, the moment Saul says, I did everything the Lord commanded me to do, Sammy. Samuel says, then what's all the bleeding of sheep and goats and the lowing cattle that I hear? It's like Saul says, what's up? <laughs> Samuel says, liar, liar, thine pants hath been on fire. What's all the bleeding and the lowing and the cattle and all the junk, dude? Samuel demanded. Okay, 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 it's true, okay. Um, the army, army, look, look, at the, look at the blame shifting. Started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and it and it's, happens with us all the time. Well, you know, you know, I mean, the army spared the best of the sheep, the goats, the cattle. He's the leader of the army. But they're going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. <clears throat> Lie. You know why? Because it was what appealed to them. They weren't doing it because it appealed to God. 
They were keeping this stuff because it appealed to them. We destroyed everything else. Isn't that good enough? Stop, Samuel says. Listen to what the Lord told me last night. And this is like a divine gulp moment. Because Saul says, what did he tell you? What did he tell you? Now listen to these words. Samuel told him, although you may think little of yourself, Saul, head and shoulders above every other person, wealthy and influential family, unbelievable pedigree, king for 25 years, although you may think little of yourself, you're the leader of the tribes of Israel. The Lord has anointed you king of Israel. And yet the way he thought about himself, little things had become big things in his character. Here's the second life lesson from King Saul. Everybody, you and your pastor, you and your parents, you and your friend, you and your spouse, everybody, everybody has things in which they feel insecure. Everybody. And those can be little things that become big things over time. Saul struggled with his place of position, his authority that was anointed by God, but he had to earn it. So he got in this vicious cycle of having to earn accolades. One of the things that is going to drive Saul to fall on his own sword someday is he had, he got so hurt and so wounded and so in a rage and so jealous because of a song that his people were singing. Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. And it put him on a trajectory over the next 30 years of his life to chase a gnat in the desert instead of humble himself before God and really be the king that God had intended him to be. Everybody has things in which they feel insecure. From looks to prominence, to the way we approach things, to what's, what are people thinking about me? What are they saying about me? Okay, let, let, let me try and give you a, a, a picture of this. Let me give you a picture of you and insecurity and me and insecurity, okay? But let me start here. So this was yesterday, okay? This is last night. And uh, that is my daughter, Sage. She's 20 days from graduation. We came to Timber Creek Church in 2005. She was one year old. Grew up in this nursery and, and kid works and TC youth. Now we're about ready to, to see her graduate. Crazy. So this is senior prom last night um, at Hudson. And so we're taking pictures last night and she's absolutely gorgeous. Um, and this, this, was, this, was, this was okay. This was fun because she's, she's got a friend and went with her. He's a guy, whatever. I mean, he's good. He loves Jesus. Let's not talk about him, okay? Let's, let's, let's not focus on that, all right? The deal is, here's what I want to show you. I want to show you a little picture, okay? So let's say that this is you. And I could say I am you, but you would much prefer to be the, the other one in the picture, I promise. This is you, okay? And this is insecurity. And here, here's how this works. Let me, let, me, let me show you how insecurity works, okay? Insecurity is there. It's running like, like, like a, uh, in your iOS. It's, it's like a virus in there 
that until you open a certain page, until you do a certain thing, you won't really even see it. It's just kind of running under the surface. So you can be totally fine and laugh and smile and insecurity is right there smiling right with you because things are good. Everything's great. It's, It's fine. It's fine. You can even take next steps in your life and you're enjoying and you're enjoying, but, but here's what can happen. Here's what can happen. Insecurity follows you. And the more it's around, the more you begin to notice it. And so eventually your smiles, because when you become aware of your insecurities, they can become like a tape recorder and this can become you now. Because, because what happens is even going somewhere, insecurity is gonna follow you. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say prom was great for the three of us. <laughs> you know? No, everybody has things in which they feel insecure. But now let me, let me dig a little deeper, okay? Let me dig a little deeper. Behind every insecurity is a lie I'm believing. Your life moves in the direction of your strongest thoughts. It's the truth. It's why Paul says in Romans, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Insecurities are based on lies in your life. Every insecurity is a lie you're believing. And the more you lean into your insecurities, the more your life moves in the direction of your insecurities. So if I will never do that, you're probably self-prophesying over you. If you say, I'm not enough, you're probably prophesying. Your insecurities is speaking up. And it's not the voice of God in your life. It's the voice of insecurity in your life. And it's a lie. The enemy would love nothing to do. He is the father of lies. His language ain't English. His language is lie. And the father of lies has little baby lies all over the place. Just wanting to lie to you and lie to you and lie to you. And the only way to get over those lies is you, re- you have to replace the lie with the truth. You have to replace that lie. And so here's some of the popular ones. They're not in your notes, but you can write them down. How I feel is who I am. Your feelings lie to you. I mean, I love Disney, but there's some bad theology in Disney. Jiminy Cricket shows up to Pinocchio, the wooden boy, and says, always let your conscience be your guide. Shut up, Cricket. Always let your conscience be, your conscience will lie to you. Cricket, 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 lie, lie, lie. And your feelings, it just felt right. Lies to you. How I feel is who I am. No, who you are is who God says you are. Who I am and what I struggle with are the same thing. So if I've got an issue or if I had a past, or if I've got a history that I'm embarrassed of, or I regret, or I've got some condemnation there, or I feel that and I wear that shame, who I am and what I struggle with is the same thing. No, 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 no. Who you are is who he says you are. Your struggle, you will go through struggle. You all will go through, I go through struggle. I fall short, I sin and fall short 
of the glory of God. Being a pastor doesn't make you immune to sin. You don't get vaccinated because you preach. You don't get spiritually vaccinated from the sin issue. Who I am and what I struggle with. Listen, my struggle doesn't have to define me, but here's what my struggle can do. Here's the beauty in it. It can refine you. It doesn't have to define you. It can refine you. When you see it and you see what you've gone through, it's the heat of that moment. It can refine you like a refiner's fire. Hey, who I am is not enough. Who I am is not enough. And do you know how people deal with this insecurity? They have to perform. They have to be accepted. They have to get that increase. They got to get that title. They got to get the corner office. They got to get the raise. They got to drive the certain vehicle. They've got to see, you got to see physically all the blessings over here so that I can finally, people can finally know I'm on the right track and things are all good and God is good because look at all these other things that are good and I'm driven by performance and I'm driven by acceptance. Here's the good news about Jesus, everybody. There is no amount of performance that will get him to accept you. Because God already performed everything for you to be completely accepted. Jesus performed everything on the cross to completely accept you. So that you don't have to feel like you've got to earn acceptance. It was paid for. It was paid for. Who I am is not. Who I am is not enough. But because of who he is. I'm enough because he is in me. And I don't have to be driven and labeled and identified by my own insecurities. Sure enough, that's what happened with Saul. Saul struggled. And Samuel says it like this. He says, why, why haven't you obeyed the Lord, Saul? Why'd you just like rush for the plunder? All the stuff. Why'd you do what was evil in the Lord's sight? And now he's, he's navigating this. He's defending himself. He's blaming. He's apologizing. Saul says, I, I did obey the Lord. Little things become big things in disguise. He can't even see straight anymore. I carried out the mission he gave me. Now, I mean, okay, okay. I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everyone else. Samuel says, no, what's more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices? or your obedience to his voice. Can I tell you, when we talked about tithe earlier, it's not about the tithing, it's about the obedience. It's about what it's attached to. It's about the, it's about the heart behind the action. Samuel says, listen, obedience is better than sacrifice. Submission, yielding is better than offering the fat of rams. And now he lowers the blow. So because... You've rejected the command of the Lord. He's rejected you as king. Whew. Now, let me, let me say something to, to, to make sure you hear it clearly. This isn't God rejecting Saul. This is God rejecting the authority of Saul as king. He's rejecting you as king, not rejecting you as a person. He doesn't reject you. But many times, consequences to an action of, of treason and tyranny against the one true king can result in consequences of... Losing something. And Saul's going to have his kingdom ripped out. The anointing is going to be pulled away from Saul. 
Now Saul admitted to Samuel, okay, I've sinned. I've disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command. I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. How many people are doing what they say? And the God, it's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not, the, it's not God whose name is Jesus. It's the God whose name is they. They want me to be a certain way. They want me to do it. They will see. They won't understand. They will make sure. They, 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 they. And that's who becomes God. God, King they. He did what they demanded. As Samuel said, nope, ain't having it. He turned to go. Saul tried to hold him back and tore the hem of his robe. Like he's desperate now. Wait, Sam. He grabs his robe and and Samuel's walking off in a hurry to rip his own clothes. And it's a prophetic moment. And Samuel turns around and the searing words that are going to follow are hard to hear, but they're necessary for Saul's development or the intersection of Saul's life to either surrender to God or get hardened heart toward God. And he chooses the latter and Samuel turns around and says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to someone else, one who is better than you. If you're already dealing with pride and ego and what people are singing about you, when you hear those three words, better than you, you better know Saul's now on red alert. Saul pleaded again. Okay, okay, okay. I know I've sinned, but please watch this, everybody. At least honor me before the elders of my people. And before Israel, by coming back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. In other words, okay, okay, you're taking off my anointing, but can I still look like I'm king? Can I still kind of act like I'm king? Will you kind of play kingdom with me anyway? Someone said it this way, God God doesn't anoint and bless who you're pretending to be. He wants, he wants to deal with you, not who you're pretending to be you. And it was done. Now Samuel finally agreed to go back with him and Saul worshiped and Samuel went home and Saul returned to his house at Gibeah. He went his way, Saul went his way and watched these words, tough words. Had been together for 25 years, Samuel never went to meet with Saul again, but he mourned constantly for him. In this moment now, Saul is acting like king, but he ain't king. Everybody's calling him King Saul, but he ain't king. And the very next chapter, the ve- right after that scripture, the very next verse in Samuel 16, now the Lord said to Samuel, you've mourned long enough. I've rejected him as king. Fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Bethlehem sound familiar, everybody? It's the shadow king place where shepherds would be raised, place where people would come and find the sheep that would be slaughtered for Passover, the lambs that would be uh, slaughtered to cover sin was in Bethlehem. And there in the shadow of a big city, someday will be named Jerusalem. Right now it's called Jebus. There about 10 miles away, the little town of Bethlehem, Samuel shows up to anoint the new king. Now listen, check this out. This stuff gets lost in scripture, but let me, let me frame it for you. Saul goes back to doing his deal. Samuel goes, 
down through the tribes and says, hey, I'm looking for Jesse's house. I need to do something. I've got something to do. I wonder if it got back to Saul. I wonder how Saul would respond at dinner one night when one guy is sitting there and he says, hey, I saw Samuel. Have you seen him lately? He said, I haven't seen him in a while. I said, well, yeah, he was down in somebody's house. He was anointing some people. I don't know what that's, what do you think that's all about? <laughs> you know, uh-oh, uh-oh. Sure enough, God says to Samuel, find a man named Jesse who lives there for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. So he goes to Jesse's house and Jesse has eight sons, eight ocho sons. And Samuel shows up and he, he knocks on Jesse's door and Jesse door, he opens it. He's like, oh, that's Samuel. Like Samuel's the real deal. Samuel's the boss man. Samuel's like legit in the tribes. He's like, Sam, Mr. 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 Samuel. He says, can I come in? I want to meet with you and your eight boys. Well, what do we do? What do we do? You know, like, okay, okay, no, 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 nothing's wrong. Bring your wife in. This is going to be a big day. This is a big day for your house, buddy. Bring all your boys in. So Jesse and his wife, they bring in seven of the eight sons. They bring them all in. There they are. And when they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab, the oldest. Eliab walks in. He had just gotten done swimming laps in the backyard pool. He's in his surf, surfer shorts, no shirt. That's my, that's if I had long hair. Exactly, exactly. He's like, what's up? Eliab stands there, dude, chiseled out. He's like, Arnold, Hebrew Arnold. And Eliab's standing there and, and, Samuel thinks, oh, oh, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Why? Because 25 years earlier, the tallest and the strongest and the most handsome, God is going through a, like a three-year decade process, a three-decade process to show the nation of Israel and to show you and me. I'm not about the look. I mean, looks matter. Looks are fine. But that's not really what I'm after. I'm not after the look. And he's teaching Samuel and his nation and us. He's teaching us a lesson in that. Surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or his height. My insecurities came from growing up the smallest of the small. Not even on the chart when my doctor would come in and you're on like the 80th percentile of, of height and, uh, you know, I, had, I was like the 140th percentile of, he, of size of head, but like I wasn't even on the chart. They've got this wavy thing that you kind of identify where you are. I wasn't even on the waves. I was like down here in the white part of the paper. It's like a pinpoint right there. I, I kid you not, I kid you not. Sixth grade, three foot six, 64, 62 pounds. Growth hormone deficiency, medical issue. Pituitary gland didn't fully develop. And in fact, it, it, it did something to my left eye because I was born 100% blind in my left eye. The, the optic nerve kind of passes over the pituitary gland in, in your brain and in mine. And something disconnected or cross-wired or went like that. And I don't know what happened. And... Uh, blind in my left eye and in fact for several years up until like fourth grade I was my left eye was crossed in so I'm like you know I'm like two and a half feet tall in second grade cross-eyed lady killer <laughs> like just like you know what's up and the ladies are like are you looking at me or 
But you know what? That created a tape recorder in my own life that I wasn't going to be the biggest and the tallest and the first picked on the dodgeball team and the kickball team. And, and so I'm off, to, I'm off to fight. I'm going to have to be scrappy and I'm going to have to be the funny one and maybe somebody. And I hope you'll pay attention to me and you'll not overlook me because I can't help my eyesight. I can't help my height. I can't work on that. I, and it can develop a tape recorder in my own heart that I've had to give to Jesus on insecurities that can drive me for approval. Are we being honest today? Is it okay, is it okay if your pastor is a little transparent with you? Because those things can define me if I let them loose. Those little things can become big things. Big things. And God is showing me right here. He's showing me. He's showing Jeremy and he's showing you. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. He sees you differently than you see yourself. He doesn't see through all your insecurity. He sees Jesus. He sees you through Jesus. When you invite Jesus to be the center of your life, he doesn't see all your imperfections and all your uh, lack of, of, of trust and your, all your mistakes. He sees you through Jesus. He doesn't see you through your shame. His son bore all your shame on the cross. Like, he sees you. He loves you. And he reaches out to you. He's not mad at you. He also wants you to follow him and obey what he said. But he doesn't see you and define you the way you define yourself even. People judge by outward appearance, but I look at the heart, God says. And all of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. All seven. Eliab stands there without his shirt, flexing it up. He says, nope. The next guy comes in, he's got some books under, you know, this is, this is like the academia guy. Nope, not the academia guy. Walks in next, it's like an Israeli Bobby Flay and he's cooking up like a stew. He's like, Samuel, try it. Here's a muse bouche. I watch HGTV every once in a while. I watch the Food Channel, all right? No, 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 seven no's, seven no's for seven sons. And Jesse and mama are like, what in the world is going on? Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. He asked, are these all the sons you have? Has something gone wrong? And Jesse goes, well, I mean, a few years ago, the missus and I had a big surprise, you know, and we weren't really planning on having any more. Seven, you know, perfect number and everything, but eight came along, old Davy. Davy, he's like, he's, he's a kid. Surely you didn't mean Dave. Little David. David's out in the shepherd. Like he, he's, he, and David, I, we love him. He's a good boy. He's a good boy. But, no, he's, he's a bit strange, okay? Like he plays with the sheep and he's always got these big stories about killing lions and bears. And it's just, it's just this thing, you know? And he's writing, he's always writing these songs and playing his banjo. It's just, you know, he's David. He's David. And Samuel says, we ain't sitting down until you go get David and bring him right here to the living room. So sure enough, Eliab and his older brother jump in the two-door pickup truck and go down to the back 40 of, the, of Jesse's ranch. Sure enough, underneath one of the trees, there's, there, there is uh, David sitting there with his shepherd's crook and his banjo. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. <laughs> <laughs> he makes me lie down. He makes me lie down. 
I'm sorry. You're, you're not getting anything out of this. I'm getting a bunch off of me. Like, like I, I'm having a good time whether you are or not. I don't care. But, but they say, Davey, get in the truck. We got to go up to the house. Hurry up. Samuel's waiting on us. Hurry, man. Hurry. He's like, are we in trouble? What's going on? Who's Samuel? Who's Samuel? You're an idiot. We mean who's Samuel? Such a kid. Ugh. Get on my nerves. You don't even know. Get in the back. Don't even get with us. You're smelling. You're sneaky. You smell like sheep crap. Get in the back of the truck. So David gets in the back of this little, you know, Datsun pickup truck. And he pull, pulls open the back. You know how you have that, that back window? Pulls it open. He's got his head in there. You, you remember Buzz on Home Alone? Who didn't want Kevin in his room. Stay out of my room, Kevin. Right? David is Kevin. They're jumping on the bed, playing with the pet tarantula. Kevin's annoying. David's annoying. He's got his, I killed a bear today. They're like, shut up, dude. Always with these stupid, big old stories. And like, you know, his other brother's like, yeah, next time you kill something, why don't you chop off its head? Prove it. And David's like, okay, okay, I can do that. <laughs> kind of puts that back in the Rolodex like, okay, okay. They pull up to the front of the house, come through the screen door. Here comes Dave. Here comes David. Like he's a skinny, teenage, pimply kid, tousled hair, sunburned nose. He's in his shorts that he's outgrown. He's he's in the hand-me-downs of his brothers. He's the eighth. Everybody. This guy. I mean, it's almost like short shorts. He's just walking in. He's got his tank top on, dragging his banjo. Y'all call for me. Everything good, Paul? And in that moment, something happens. Samuel sees what God sees. And David's standing there, and Samuel walks right up to him. He's like, and he just begins to pour oil over his head. Now, we make sense of scripture because we're on the outside looking in. But like David, like I don't think anybody probably warned him. It's not like Jesse caught him outside and says, son, there's going to be this thing going on. Like just, just trust us as Samuel. Like I wonder if David's going, what is this old man doing? <laughs> like what am I? Oh boy. <laughs> you know? And just pours over his head and down his young adolescent face and into his tank top. And as David stood there among his brothers... That flask of oil he had brought anointed David with the oil. Just the next few minutes we have, let me give you just a few more thoughts. Life lessons from teenage David. Number one, write it down. And hear me on this. Hear Jesus on this. Your family doesn't qualify you. Being the strongest, being the best, being the, being the firstborn and being the lastborn, coming from a strong heritage of a grandma who prayed prayers over you. My grandma prayed prayers. That don't mean nothing for your own soul. I, I just, I just got to say this to you. I'm thankful for a Christian heritage. My dad's an ordained minister. My mom's an ordained minister. My brother's an ordained minister. My sister's an ordained minister. All of us right now, all across the United States, are preaching in churches today. Heritage of serving God, loving Jesus. Where did we get it all right? You bet you not. No way. No way. 
but a strong Christian heritage. Six years old, I'm standing in Monette Assembly of God pulpit, and my parents are clean. It's a small church. There are the pastors and the janitors and the kid workers and the bus drivers and the lawn care experts. And at six years old, I'm standing as they're, play, as they're cleaning house. I'm standing at the pulpit at six. My daddy hates the devil. And my mama hates the devil. And I hate the devil, but we love Jesus, bless God. Oh, we love. But my family doesn't qualify me. And your family doesn't qualify you. And your pedigree doesn't mean make a difference. Oh, I, my parents prayed and they taught me right. But I want you to know that it's, it's not about that. It's that God sees you as you. And you got to do business with God and not let your spouse do business with God for you. You got to do business with God. And there's got to come a time where you, you flip the script, where you're just coming and investigating Christ because you're here with a family member or with a spouse. You got to make it for your own because I'm going to tell you, there's no coattails when it comes to salvation. You've got to make the decision. God made that decision on David. And it wasn't about Jesse and it wasn't about the pedigree. As a matter of fact... Had it been the pedigree, David never should have been anointed as king because God was clear that there should be no pagan, there should be no bad blood that would be over the nation of Israel. Yet, yet there was bad blood in David. So here's the, another good thing. Write it down. Your family doesn't disqualify you. God, oh, man, that's some good news. That's some good news. Your family, your dysfunction, your history, your wound, your, your regret, your pain, your shame, your conviction, the sentence, you name it, that doesn't disqualify you from what God will do next in your life. Look at, look at, look, look at this. David's great-grandmother was a Gentile. Great-grandma. His great-grandma, granny. Granny was a Gentile. So he's coming from mixed blood. He's not a purebred Israeli. David's great-great-grandmother was Rahab, who scholars believe was a, either, either a madam over a brothel or a prostitute herself on the wall of Jericho. Who There's like a love story we don't even see, but we believe one of the spies was a man named Salmon, Salmon who came in, fell in love. Later, Salmon uh, married Rahab. And after that, they had a child named Boaz, Boaz, and Boaz married Ruth, who was the, the grandmother Gentile. David, the great-great-grandmother, was a prostitute. And David's only five generations from slavery. And yet God says, that's my boy. That's my boy. And over the no next few weeks, what we're going to uncover is this primary problem. Write it down. Between David and Saul, it's the overlap of public appearance and private reality. Saul is no longer king but he's acting like king. David is now king, but he doesn't even know what king looks like. There's a private reality and a public appearance. And as I want to remind you, God is not going to bless what we're pretending to be. So as we close, let's look at life lessons from life's lessons. What are just a couple life's lessons from life's lessons? As I already read, Samuel took the flask of oil 
He had brought and anointed David with the oil. Do you know what the next scripture says? It says, and he was anointed and the power of the spirit of God was on him. And then here's the very next line, okay? Here's the very next line. The line is not, let me tell you what it, it isn't. Let me tell you what the line isn't. You remember Rocky Balboa? He had a trainer named Mickey. Okay, Mickey was like with Rocky early in the morning chasing chicken. Come on, Rock, you're gonna eat lightning and crap thunder. Like, like he's, he's just in there, he's an Iron Man coach. All right, let's go. He's right there with, with Rocky the whole time. You would think that now David, like the, the 80s musical video montage starts and it's like, hearts on fire. And you got, you got like Rocky, or you, you got David who's like learning how to throw a, you know, a stone in a sling and he's missing and he's missing and he's missing. Then he hits the target. Then, he hits, then it's a bullseye and he's like doing the whole knife thing. And he's like, oh, like Ninja Turtle on him. Like, no, here's the next line. It's not like he gets a coach to become king. Samuel returned to Ramah. David's a teenager kid. Samuel returns to Ramah. And David is going to wait almost 17 years before he's ever king. 17 years before he's crowned king. Here's a life lesson. God's word for your today. God spoke to you. God showed you. God confirmed it. God's word for your today doesn't mean your destiny arrives tomorrow. Every single one of us are going to go through an incubation period. We're going to go through a waiting. Next week, I'm going to unpack how do you wait? How do you wait? What's your posture of waiting when God is anointed, but the answer hasn't come? God has spoken, but it's like things aren't working out yet. You know that you know that you know, but like this isn't the way I thought it was going to look like. What do we do in that waiting period? David's going to show us what to do. He's going to show us how to worship. Saul's going to show us what not to do, how to let pride become a jealous rage. But let me end with this. Not only does God's word for your today mean that sometimes it's not going to come today, it's going to come down the road, but what your God sees in you and says about you is enough. It's enough. It's enough. Stop apologizing for that behavior. Give it to the Lord. Love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He will empower you to do what's right. Start walking in the spirit and you'll not gratify, gratify the desires of the flesh. Love him first though. It's not about biting your bottom lip and behavioral modification. It's about replacing the lie that you're not enough with the truth that he is enough. And because of what he says and what he sees, that's enough for me. So when, look at it. I can't figure it out. God says, uh-uh, I'll direct your steps. When you say, I'm, out, I'm just too tired, come to me. I'll give you rest. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about the situation. Cast your cares on me because he cares. I'm not able, I'm able, I can't go on. My grace is sufficient for you. I'm not smart enough. I'll give you wisdom, ask for it, I'll give it to you. I'm not enough. Hey, guess what? I am, I am, I'm enough. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads today? 
maybe all of us need to just take a moment and re-up on our surrender, re-up on our realization that insecurities will, will lie to us. But God, your truth, you are the way, the truth, and the life. We can't even come to the Father, but through you. And so because of who you are, we find out who we are. You're the shepherd, we're the sheep. You're the savior, we are the saved. You're the creator, we're the creation. You are who you say you are. And we are who you say we are. God, we just, we do a little throne inventory. If there's anything on the throne, guiding us, directing us, stabilizing us, that's not you. We perform right now a coup d'etat on our own hearts. We're gonna overthrow that false government, that straw government of me, myself, and I, and my insecurities, and my wound, and my rejection, and I push it aside, and Jesus, have your throne in my heart. For some of you, that may be the first time or the first time in a long time you need to say, Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are, but you've not been on my heart. You've not been in my heart or on my throne. I surrender to you today. Be the king of my life, the Lord of my life, the savior of my life. I can't do anything with my sin. I, I can be a good person, but I can't fix my sin. I need a savior to do that. Save me from my sin that separates me from you. Thank you, Jesus, for not being mad at me, but loving me so much you would give me this moment to make things right with you. So now I'm gonna replace the lie that I'm in charge <laughs> with the truth. You're in charge. You are God and I give my life to you. May the king we search for be the one true king. We ask it in the name of Jesus, the strong son of God. Everybody said amen.